first achieves the rare one-two punches of being short and thorough, national and international, fact-based and personable. Every morning, we take the three biggest stories of the day and explain why they matter. And we do it all in less than 15 minutes. So you can start your day a little more in the know than when you went to sleep. Listen now to the Up First podcast from NPR. I'm Charlotte Fussell, the writer of The Other Half. When London socialite and social media influencer Clemmie O'Hara is found murdered under a bush in a park, Detective Caius Beauchamp is thrust into the world of privilege and absurdity of some of London's wealthiest bluebloods. That's the premise of Charlotte Vassell's debut novel, The Other Half. It follows the twists and turns of a complicated murder investigation, complete with scathing social commentary on some of the stereotypes that divide social classes. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Charlotte Vassell. Do you have an elevator pitch for the other half? I mean, could you give our listeners a description of the book? I would describe the book as a mashup between an Agatha Christie style whodunit and an almost contemporary take on an Evelyn Wall sort of bright young things, borderline aristocratic, fast, rich London set where they're all gorgeous and loaded. Maybe we should start by introducing one of the protagonists, and it's Caius Bosham. He is a detective who stumbles mm. upon, I, I, this isn't a spoiler to say he stumbles upon a body, because, I mean, that's the cover <laughs> of the book right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe before I get into asking about these characters and what's going on. Maybe we should introduce readers to the plot. Lovely. Uh, so our Detective Inspector Caius Beauchamp is a young, half Jamaican, half Irish, ambitious detective in the Met. He's just been dumped by his beautiful ex, Elwaz, who's a Parisian poet, and she's left him in a big storm. And he's taken up like jogging and eating quinoa as a sort of, you know, a, that post-breakup kick that you kind of go through. So he's out for a job on Hampstead Heath, beautiful picturesque, would recommend it for a lovely walk if you're ever visiting London. And on his jog, he spots a foot poking out from under a bush and then closer inspection. It's the body of Clemmie O'Hara, a stunning Instagram influencer with a dodgy but very posh and very handsome boyfriend called Rupert. So I want to talk about, you know, both Caius and Rupert. They share a last name, but they pronounce it yes. differently. One is Beauchamp and one is Beecham. You know, I think that even the pronunciation serves as a nice metaphor for the comparison of the social classes. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about this yeah. separation and this glimpse into the lives of the other half from either side. Well, interestingly, the name thing sort of comes from my own history. So my father's parents are Jamaican um, and we've got this kind of slightly grand looking surname that we sort of pronounced one way and then people will pronounce it phonetically another. And we, we're, we're all totally unsure about how we actually pronounce our own name. And there's actually a, a borough, like an, a small area rather than borough in Brixton, South London, called Vassal. There's a road, Vassal Road, and it's these beautiful white stucco townhouses absolutely like crazy money to buy one and the people that owned that land and built those georgian properties were also involved 
in the slave trade in the Caribbean. So it's this kind of feeling of like, I am British, but I have this like violent past, (laughs) like an almost like an ancestral wound, I suppose. And I think that's where the, the name discrepancy between Beauchamp and Beecham came through. And I also think it's one of those names, Beecham, that um, unless you knew someone or had read it probably in a Woodhouse novel, but it's pronounced differently, you just wouldn't know. <laughs> and I think that's quite funny to play with. There's a quite a famous essay and then a book written by Nancy Mitford, the aristocratic writer, of one of my favourites, uh, The Pursuit of Love. And she wrote this article on you and non-you words. So you is upper class and non-you is middle class. Um, and it's, you know, it's the difference between napkin and serviette. And you'd think serviette would be the posh one because it sounds French, but actually it's napkin. Posh people prefer sort of plainer standard English over sort of the fancier sounding thing, which is almost like it's trying to hide the humdrumness of life behind a nice French flourish. And yeah, I think that's the that's the thing that I wanted to really play with there. The other half is your debut novel. Where did you find the inspiration for this book? Where did you harvest this idea? Well, I think I actually had the idea originally in 2015, but it it sort of life got in the way and it it took the pandemic and me being furloughed and stuck at home and not really allowed to leave (laughs) in order to write it. But I think a lot of the a lot of the satire that is throughout the book is very much things that I'd sort of observed in life. I'd lived in London for for 10 years by the time I got to writing it. And London is as one of those cities where the haves and the have-nots live and rub shoulders side by side. Everyone's sort of on top of each other. We all use the same public transport to get to the same places. But the discrepancies in wealth and opportunities, health outcomes, education outcomes is totally different. I do think as someone with like a, a British Jamaican heritage, I've always felt slightly other. My undergraduate degree was in was in history as well. So I've always been really interested in social hierarchies and class. So I, I do feel like I observe and have observed the sort of class distinctions up close in a way sort of makes me almost feel like a like a, an intrepid anthropologist. <laughs> um and and I think it's it's just so stark when you actually really start to think about it. It's one of those things in Britain that people really take for granted that we all know it's there and we all move within the system and we know that there's particular rules. And I think Britain is one of the worst places in the developed world for social mobility. If you're born uh, in one class on one particular income, you're incredibly unlikely to change throughout your life, no matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter that you are born in that position, you're going to die in it. So there has been a recent study in the UK where they've tracked rare surnames of people in the Victorian era and linked it to the census. So they could see what people's wealth levels were like in the mid-19th century and how their descendants are doing, you know, 100 years later. If your ancestors were rich in the 1850s, you are still rich now. If your ancestors were poor in the 1850s in Britain, you are still poor now. And that's despite the kind of huge sort of social upheaval and the change that um, and the, to social mobility that happened after the Second World War. It's you're still very much dictated to by what someone was doing 175 years ago. You mentioned the satirical look at the difference in the social classes, but 
You know, the, the actions of some of your characters seemed unlikely as well. And I'm thinking like of the, the food conscious detectives. Were you trying <laughs> to turn stereotypes on their heads? Yeah, I was. Um, I think the kind of, you know, Caius being really into making quinoa and sweet potato burgers <laughs> and things like that. I think that's actually plays into almost like a, the millennial thing for self-improvement. So, you know, we're, we're in the age of sort of Instagram and there's Pinterest and you can find all these interesting recipes. I, I think part of that as well in Britain, I've noticed in my lifetime, there's there's been a real shift in people's diets. So I remember eating halloumi for the first time <laughs> in like once I went to university in my early 20s and that sort of um interest in other cuisines has sort of you know been building with uh immigration from the 50s but um but yeah it's it's I think it's a generational shift there uh that that's kind of occurred I think the interesting thing with Caius um is that his family is sort of lower middle class like his father was a builder which is like a traditionally a working class trait, but because of the insaneness of the London housing market and the fact that his family are from London, so they own their own houses in London from when it was fairly cheap to buy, his family are on the on their way up in terms of how much wealth they had, just through the fluke of property ownership. So part of it, I think, is is Caius navigating the fact that actually he's slightly ashamed of it. It's part of the reason he doesn't like Rupert, but his dad owns his dad's a landlord and owns properties and, and rents them out to people. So he's very firmly entered the middle class through that. And also he went to university and has a university degree. And, you know, he's a he's in a very respectable position in the Met. So combining the serious, I mean, this book had <laughs> murder and sexual assault and drug use mm. with the comical, you know, the characters with over-the-top names like Minty or Help for Hippos or the yoga-practicing food-conscious detectives. How did you balance those two weighty objects or the weighty with the less weighty? You know, I don't think I... I think I must have done it in my subconscious. It's... I went to I went to drama school. I, I, I was an actor brief, very briefly. And I did... I had quite a classical training. So we did a lot of things like Shakespeare... And Shakespeare does it so well when you have Lady Macbeth and Macbeth off on a killing rampage. And then you've got the origin of the knock knock joke on the next page. So yeah, I, I've sort of I think I've sort of absorbed a couple of those lessons there. I, I, and I think um, I think we live in a time as well where we where everything feels like it's very much an upheaval. So even if you want to make quite a serious point, it almost hits home a little bit harder if you if you contrast it with, with something else that's a bit lighter. And I, I, I ultimately actually set out to write a satire, but I couldn't make the plot move. I just thought these people are so dreadful and they're so navel gazing and they're so self pitying and awful that I need a solid policeman to make the plot move. <laughs> so let's talk about that then, how you had to bring Caius in to get the plot mm. moving. I both read it and I listened to the audio. And so the audio has two different narrators. There's uh, the female narrator who is, the voice is Nell, one of the characters, mm -hmm. and then the male narrator is Caius. I guess this is a question about craft. How did you mm. decide whose turn it was to tell the story? Because I could hear there was like that audible shift when I was, you know, yeah. my mind didn't even have to 
try to suss out what was on the page because the audio cue was there. But how, as the writer, did you decide whose turn it was to tell the story? Um, I think I did two things, um, both involving a, a quite complicated, convoluted spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I split the investigation, or I tried to split the investigation into more plausible day um so by days so you know this happens on monday and then this happens on tuesday and this happens on wednesday and I'm very aware that that's not how actual police <laughs> investigations work they can be you know huge labors and take a really long time um so that was the first thing i sort of put that that day structure in which meant i could divvy out the police procedure kind of side of it sort of logically and space it out so it went, went over a couple of weeks and then I could by that I could see where the Nell kind of love triangle chapters needed to slot in, and obviously, like Nell um, is not giving too much away, but she's one of Rupert's friends from university, uh, and she's at his birthday party, which the the novel opens with. So there's kind of her reaction to the birthday party, and then there's Rupert's reaction to the police investigation. So his he would then need to speak to her so in some ways it was quite organic but what I did do was in my convoluted spreadsheet with all the days I um did write a very brief description of what each chapter was going to be and then color coordinated it from whose perspective it was going to be so that if I could just look at it visually if one chapter was one one day was really orange and there was no pink in it then I'd think oh there's there should be a little bit of nail in that room. And then, and vice versa, if there was a lot going on that was Nell, but not enough, sort of Caius, Matt and Amy, then, okay, something needs to move or shift around there. I'm a, I'm a very visual person in that sense. I like colour. I find it really helpful. So the book was chock full of literature and history and art, and you've already mentioned history and Shakespeare. Are these passion subjects of yours? They are, yes. Yeah, I have an undergraduate degree in history and a master's in art history. And then somewhere along the line, I decided to train as an actor as well. So all, all of the kind of the, the bits that it touches on, you know, Artemisia Gentileschi and all the different museums in London that Nell in particular interacts with. Um, but also Jane Austen features fairly prominently, at least in one chapter. They're all things that I liked and loved well enough to think that I, I might be able to chuck my two cents in and have a little tiny bit of commentary <laughs> or at least use them for symbolism. Um, every time there's a pre-Raphaelite exhibit anywhere in the south of Lund- like south of England, I'm there. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about Jane Austen because Nell's love of Jane Austen shines through, particularly Persuasion and perhaps Mansfield Park. And you mentioned like the glossing over of the <laughs> slave trade that Austen does in that one. So do you have a favorite Austen work? Persuasion is my favorite, actually. But Pride and Prejudice and the 1995 version with Colin Firth and was, <laughs> was my introduction to Austen. Now, I understand we'll see more of Caius Bosch. See, I'm, now I'm going to say yeah. it wrong. Caius Beauchamp <laughs> in the future. I mean, what's, what's the plan for this series? Uh, well, book two is written, sort of doing a couple more edits on it. And I'm just about to start book three. I've got 12,000 words. Um, I am somewhere between a planner and a pantser as a writer. So I, I can't tell you, but this is definitely not the last outing for Caius. He will be back and with a vengeance. <laughs> and now we've talked about a lot without giving anything away, I think. Is there anything <laughs> that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Oh, no, I don't think so. You've asked so many lovely questions. 
I felt like I, I really tried to to almost write like the millennial police procedure, if that makes sense. That because I felt like I hadn't really seen that, and I really tried to to sort of write from my own perspective, my own sort of ethnicity, I suppose. Um, and I felt like I hadn't really seen that sort of mirroring how my family live, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think I, I kind of, I really tried to do something slightly different. Hope I succeeded. <laughs> well, the book is The Other Half. Charlotte Vassell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh no, thank you so much for having me. That was Charlotte Vassell, author of the book, The Other Half, which was published by Anchor. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.